Hello, I'm Basha Cummings and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. Now, do you remember a time only two months ago when it looked like Boris Johnson might be on the verge of losing power? And I mean, it already feels like months thanks to just how quickly the events in Ukraine have unfolded. But it was just a matter of weeks ago that Partygate was producing headline after headline and members of the Prime Minister's own party were calling for his resignation. But not for the first time, Boris Johnson came out the other side almost unscathed. Now you could say that the Russian invasion of Ukraine rightly diverted attention away from questions about his leadership and it was that that saved him from his fate. But my colleague, the reporter Lara Spirit, has found that there was a lot more to that period in Westminster than meets the eye. In particular, three men who you've probably never heard of, who played a crucial role in keeping Johnson in his job. Over to Lara. It is indefensible, and I have made my thoughts very clear internally. For those at the heart of government to show such a total lack of empathy and awareness to the rules is wholly irresponsible. This is a letter from a Conservative MP called Duncan Baker to one of his constituents. That's not his voice, but you can hear that he's not pulling any punches. It's about the Downing Street parties, and the constituent who's written to Duncan Baker has obviously asked if he sent in a letter to Sir Graham Brady which is what MPs have to do if they want a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. I hope you'll respect my decision to not publicly be telling anybody whether I have or have not written to Sir Graham Brady at this stage. And it looks as if Duncan's not playing ball. Even my wife will not know that information. And then, and this is the bit that bites. But as you have seen from my previous actions, I am not a person who is appalled and takes no action. So Duncan Baker's not a man who sits on his hands if something indefensible has happened. He might not explicitly say he'll be handing in a letter here, but his feelings on the Prime Minister couldn't be clearer. So here's a mystery. And it's the mystery I'm going to try and solve in this podcast. How does an MP who says all that about Boris Johnson end up taking a job in government just a few weeks later? If I could understand that, and I think I do now, then maybe I could understand how the Prime Minister survived a week in Westminster when it looked like he came as close as he ever did to losing his position. I'm Lara Spirit, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. So, Duncan Baker, the MP for North Norfolk. The reason I'm interested in Duncan is this. He went from attending a meeting where disgruntled Conservative MPs plotted to get rid of the Prime Minister to accepting a job from him and then supporting him without question. I'm interested in him because he changed my mind about a story, one that I thought was right but was actually wrong. There was a week in the middle of January which everybody came to believe was the moment of maximum peril for the Prime Minister. The conventional narrative in Westminster about that week was that what saved Boris Johnson was a backlash against a Conservative MP called Christian Wakeford, who crossed the floor, as they say. He defected from the Conservatives to Labour. Watch Labour MPs cheer as Christian Wakeford walks to their side of the chamber and sits down right behind Keir Starmer. It was a move that was meant to galvanise other Conservatives into doing the same and to trigger the downfall of Boris Johnson. 
But it didn't play out that way. And the story they tell around Westminster is that it actually came to save him. Now, people enjoy that narrative, one of deep Westminster tribalism, of betrayal and loyalty. But I found out that the reality of that week is much more complicated. While the defection was a moment of pure drama, a moment which one upset MP said was remarkable for its viciousness, its impact wasn't just to galvanise MPs into loyalty. As well as that, it created space for a shadowy operation which did much more than the defection to save Boris Johnson's skin. How close is he to waving goodbye? No one knows, and getting rid of a prime minister can be a long journey. But even as Boris... That operation was run by three men in the Conservative Party, who you've probably never heard of. They called it a shadow whipping operation. And one by one, it picked off enough MPs who were plotting against the prime minister to turn the tide in his favour. But it's the way the shadow whipping operation worked, which is the real eye-opener. It was a brutal use of political patronage, of the Prime Minister's patronage. It was, quite literally, jobs for the boys. But let's go back to that week, and why in Westminster, people think that it was Christian Wakeford who saved the Prime Minister's skin. It's a Monday, January 17th. This is the week when... For this story, it all happened. The Prime Minister began it, still arguing the party he'd been photographed at in Downing Street was, implicitly, as he kept saying, a work event. Well, with reports of yet another leaving party, this week the Prime Minister is fighting back to ensure that he isn't forced from leaving his job. Six Tory MPs have now publicly called for his resignation. OK, we'll get to that in about a minute. There's no Sue Gray report yet, but it's expected any day. We don't know about the Met Police investigation, which will prevent it being published in full. But it is pretty dire for Boris Johnson. So dire, in fact, that Operation Red Meat had got well underway over the weekend. Boris Johnson had started throwing crowd-pleasing policies to his backbenchers. It felt like he was lashing out. At the BBC, there was that promise to freeze the licence fee. And at the small boats carrying migrants across the Channel, they were going to be stopped by the military. But there was something else in the papers that week which caught the eye of a disgruntled Conservative MP, our Christian Wakeford, who was about to defect. The words he saw were anonymous, but he thought he knew exactly where they came from, the Culture Secretary and Boris Johnson ultra-loyalist Nadine Dorries. They belittled the new 2019 Conservative intake. MPs like him. It was uh, along the lines of uh, who do these effing 2019ers think they are? They owe everything to Boris for a load of effing nobodies. Right, yeah. Um, so it's like, well, great. If, uh, if that's what the front bench uh, think of the back benches as to we're, you know, we're basically here for voting folder. By the middle of the week, Christian Wakeford had decided he wanted to become a Labour MP. But how did it come to this? Clyde Valley in Northumberland, election night's first shock result. When this seat turned blue, the die was cast. Boris Johnson wasn't just going to take Labour's red wall, he was going to wipe it out. We were talking earlier about the red wall. Well, that has been breached. In fact, if you Christian was one of the MPs who shattered the red wall on election night in 2019. It's a term given to the seats which swung to Boris Johnson's party and won him the election, having been Labour for years. It must have felt incredible. It, it, it was kind of insane and then a, a plethora of all the emotions as to have we, haven't we, 
oh, I, I've won. And I, I don't think it really sank in until the, the Monday morning. It started well. The stomping 80-seat majority gave Christian Wakeford and others the sense that the Conservative victory was their victory. And Boris Johnson said as much at the time. But that didn't last long. And over the past few weeks, a number of those MPs, not just Christian, have told me how little attention Boris Johnson has given them since. Two of them said they haven't had a single one-on-one conversation with him until that week that Christian Wakeford left. But for Christian, it went much deeper than that. So when did you, if you can think back to the very first time you thought I might not be in the right party, when do you think that moment would be? I, I've, I think the Dominic Cummings issue really hit a nerve with me. I think by the time I'd written uh, my statement as to where I felt and then toned it down several times and even then um, I didn't think it went far enough. Um, that that really angered me and the fact you had minister after minister going out on national TV defending him, it felt unedifying, it didn't feel right. I, I think you, you almost saw two camps um, forming quite quickly. One, one which was for the government loyalists. Yeah, I, I will say I will do whatever I need to because yeah, I want to back the government. I, I want to try and create a career down here. And you know, there were a few of us who you know, just literally saw it as black and white. Is it right or is it wrong? And that was wrong. At this stage, the defection was a long time in the works. And it started, in a way, accidentally. A Labour staffer, someone who isn't an MP himself but works for one, have been spending time with Christian. Uh, it was just more of a case of actually having some social downtime, a couple of beers, watch the football. Um, they went to the football together at New Year on Christian's patch to watch Radcliffe Borough versus FC United. They were from different political parties, of course, but when they spoke about political issues, it was clear they felt the same. We'd meet, we'd have a chat. I like to think I'm a, a, you know, a nice guy. You know, if someone wants, wants to have a chat, I, I don't care what their background is. Um, so, yeah, we, we got chatting and you know, became friends on the back of it. It's almost like a romance, that feeling you have when you realise you're surprisingly in tune with someone, even if they're not theoretically your type. When I was not angry but clearly annoyed with, uh, with the government's stance on either particular issues, um, yeah, we'd have a chat. Um, it became undeniable. And before long, it was time to take the relationship further. Then, by the autumn, Christian Wakeford was in touch with a Labour whip, that is, another MP who ensures their party's MPs vote, and vote in the right way, called Chris Elmore. And so do you remember the first time you ever spoke to Chris Elmore? Uh, That first time wasn't until December. Soon they were meeting weekly, but texting incessantly. No, there was nothing to lose by literally just uh, sitting down and having a coffee, um, but very conscious as to where it may lead. At this point, only five people in Labour knew that Christian might even be thinking about leaving the party. One of them was Keir Starmer, and Christian Wakeford had been promised that his secret was being tightly guarded. Yeah, I mean, we, we touched base uh, over WhatsApp quite a bit, and, and I left it that over Christmas. Um, for one, to try and recharge, you know, actually get some downtime, because after uh, 18 months of COVID, uh, I think everyone was exhausted. Yeah. After Christmas, the courting began again. The meetings, the coffees, the texts. Kind of makes makes me think of that Mitchell and Webb uh, skit where you know, they're sat there in the trenches and they're talking about whether or not they're the baddies. It, it very much became a existential crisis within me, really. Of am I in the right place? You know, a, a conservative uh, party that I'd been a member of for 19 years, and you know, it's it's not a good place to be where you question yourself almost on a daily basis. And in the background of Christian's personal crisis. 
public attention was focusing on allegations of Downing Street parties. These suggest that the position of the Conservatives is now even weaker than it was just before Christmas. That Monday, the week of maximum risk for Boris Johnson, the polling guru John Curtis raised the hairs on the skin of MPs sitting in marginal seats just like Christians when he laid out just how unpopular Boris Johnson was. Now, the opinion polls are suggesting that for every Conservative voter, people who voted Conservative in 2019, who think that the Prime Minister should stay, there is another one who thinks that he should go. And at that point, had it been discussed kind of bringing Keir into the fold, talking to Keir about it? Uh, so that escalated quite quickly. I think by that point, it, the academic side as to, you know, do I cross, do I not cross, that question had actually been answered. It was very much then more the emotional side. What does it mean to, to friendship? What's the actual logistics of, of doing so? At 6pm, Keir Starmer and Christian met for the first time. So I, I'd, I'd got to this office and I guess to some extent was pacing outside because it's once you go in, there's, there's no going back. They got on. Keir Starmer set out why the Labour Party had changed. And Christian believed they were a different party from the one Jeremy Corbyn led into the 2019 election. Christian told Keir Starmer, at this moment, that it was a matter of when, not if, he jumped ship. But the when mattered to Labour. And people involved in these discussions say that pressure was put on Christian to move quickly. Keir Starmer was convinced that the Wednesday would be best. The Prime Minister's questions would be the moment when Christian's move would inflict maximum damage on the Prime Minister. For which I was taken aback because I, I was thinking, right, well, I'm, I'm here, I'm not against it, but you know, I want this to be on my timetable because it's, it's, it's essentially me who is uh, going to be doing that very physical you know, walk across it's the chamber. It's a huge thing, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, still occasionally goosebumps about that. Christian Wakeford wants more time. They agree to go away and to think about it. But here, accounts differ. People close to Christian including Christian himself, say the Wednesday wasn't in the works yet. But Labour figures insist that it was one of a number of options. The favourite, even. So Christian went to bed that Tuesday night with no sense at all that the following day he'd be defecting. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. 
How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. How much trouble is he in today as far as the uh, Red Wall uh, MPs are concerned? Operation Pork Pie, as it's been called. It, sounds it was a Wednesday, Wednesday 19th of January. Two days into the week, it all happened. That morning, journalists were cancelling their plans. Overnight, 20 of the 2019 intake of MPs, the ones elected just three years before, had been at a plot to try and oust Johnson. The media had reported that Christian Wakeford had been there. But actually, he hadn't. It would end up being called the Pork Pie Plot, because Melton Mowbray, the pie town, is in the constituency of one of its members, Alicia Kearns and probably because somebody wanted to undermine the seriousness of the whole thing. It's a meeting you need to remember, because we'll return to it later on. There'd been a slight lull at the start of the week, but by Tuesday, after an interview Boris Johnson gave to Sky where he appeared uncharacteristically downbeat and weak, the sense of peril that had loomed over his premiership for weeks suddenly went off the scale. And, uh, you know, as I said in the House of Commons, um, uh, when I went out into that garden, I, I thought that I was attending a, a work event. I think it's, very important it's worth saying now, nobody apart from Sir Graham Brady, who chairs the Conservative committee which collects letters of no confidence, the letters you need to get rid of Boris Johnson from MPs, knows exactly how many of them have been sent in. And you need 54 to force a vote. So I'm not including the many comments I had from Tory MPs that they were single figures or just a few short of that number by the Wednesday morning. The truth is that, aside from the seven that were public, we just don't know. But a whip had reportedly said that there were 54 out there. They were extremely concerned. And you can see why. Over 100 Tory MPs had said they were waiting for the report, Sue Gray's report into the Downing Street parties by the Wednesday. More than one told me his constituents had said thousands, literally thousands, of angry letters about Partygate. Everybody said there were far more during this period than when Dominic Cummings tested his eyesight. And you remember that moment. It was huge, right? And one said that for the first time ever, the phone actually started ringing with seriously upset constituents wanting to speak directly with him. Not just that these parties had happened, but that the Prime Minister had lied about them and was still lying. And that morning, that Wednesday, with all of this driving Westminster into a frenzy, Christian Wakeford got a call from a Labour whip called Chris Elmore. He twisted Christian's arm. He said the story of the defection might be about to leak. And how did you feel when he first told you about that story? Uh, honestly, physically sick. Chris Elmore did give him the choice, but he made it clear that Labour's preference would be in just three hours' time at Prime Minister's questions. In the end, Christian agreed, but he said he still needed to tell his wife. He'd only told her that week that he was even thinking about defecting, he didn't feel ready. He felt, actually, petrified. To leave a party he'd belonged to for 19 years with just hours' notice. It's a big thing. That was 9am. PMQs loomed in his mind. Just three hours away, when he'd be sitting on the opposite benches, facing hundreds of his old colleagues, knowing they'd be furious, think him a traitor, perhaps never talk to him again. Much of those three hours was spent just trying not to be physically sick. 
It's available to watch on Parliament Live TV. I now come to Prime Minister's questions. Now, Parliament is very busy on a Wednesday. I've only been covering it for a short time, but I'd know a Wednesday from any other day. The Chamber of the House of Commons is full to the brim. MPs are squashed onto the benches, and the ones who can't sit down have to stand by the door. They're all there, of course, for the Prime Minister's 30-minute showing. And it is a show. It's noisy. I remember joining the lobby and someone telling me before I first went into the chamber that it's a very different experience to when you watch Prime Minister's questions at home, which I'd done for years. It's extremely noisy, and they were right. But it's about more than the leader-to-leader joust. Journalists watch from above, in the press galleries, for signs of loyalty waning. Which cabinet ministers sit around the prime minister? And who asks the obsequious, pointless questions, which point out the brilliance of the government? Or maybe there are signs pointing the other way. Which MP furrows her brow when the PM answers a controversial question and doesn't cheer when everyone else does? And on a day when the views of every single Conservative MP mattered arguably more than ever for Boris Johnson, when whips and journalists were scribbling lists of names of those who may or may not be sending in letters, it was packed. The news of his decision has broken just moments before. Well, that is quite incredible. We saw Christian Wakeford there as the list... And in walked Christian Wakeford. Not to the Conservative benches, but to the ones opposite. The ones where Labour MPs sit. And he sat directly behind Keir Starmer. Obviously, with how the parliamentary chamber is set up, you know, it is adversarial. And you're having 300 uh, plus of your former friends and colleagues kind of staring at you. And you're trying not to make any eye contact, whilst trying to find individuals to make eye contact with. That that was a challenge. Um, I mean, from that point, you know, my, my greatest achievement of that day was not throwing up on the back of Keir Starmer's head. Uh, I'm sure he's grateful for that too. It's hard to overstate the shock that some Tory MPs had at this moment. The ones I spoke to said there was disbelief and a lot of confusion. But not just that. Hurt. And pain as well. Um, uh, Christian is a very good friend of mine, an excellent MP, and I would be surprised, to say the least, if that was the case. This is Andrew Bowie, a Conservative MP, who was a very good friend of Christian's. Now, you can't see Andrew's face on Politics Live in that moment, but there's a look on his face of astonishment, of being genuinely caught off guard. A look, really, that MPs are trained to hide on TV. So you don't um, think that's true? I haven't spoken to Christian no. today. I couldn't say categorically, but I well, would be very surprised if Christian was about to jump ship to the Labour Party. Very quickly, it turned into a bit of a meme among his colleagues. They share the picture with good humour. But at the time... There was nothing funny about it to Conservative MPs. Going into PMQs, it was widely believed that Boris Johnson was on the verge of facing a vote of no confidence and possibly losing his job. Keir Starmer had high hopes for this moment. Labour sources were briefing that there were more defectors ready to follow Christian Wakeford. It was to be called Operation Domino. Chris Elmore, the shadow whip I mentioned, was said to be a Tory whisperer who was going to coax even more across the aisle. They'd invested so much energy in this moment, put so much into persuading Christian to jump, and to jump when he did. They hoped it would be like dramatic defections of the past, defections that dramatise the inevitable decline of a leader. But it backfired. Christian's defection had the opposite effect. It didn't galvanise more defectors, 
What it really did was lend a helping hand to Boris Johnson's patronage operation. Chris Heaton-Harris, Chris Pincher and Nigel Adams are the three men who really saved the Prime Minister that week. All of them were elected in 2010, so they've had well over a decade in the halls of Westminster. And all were ministers when this took place. Chris Heaton-Harris, a minister for Europe, Chris Pincher for housing, and Nigel Adams, a minister without portfolio. So they had clout. Chris Pincher was deputy whip before. Chris Heaton-Harris was described to me as one of the good guys. He's an affable Brexiteer, they say, who commands a lot of respect among backbenchers. Nigel, too. Now, these three weren't official whips, that is, MPs who shepherd their party to show up and vote in a particular way. But they became unofficial whips at that time, running what has been called the shadow whipping operation. Can you explain briefly what whipping actually is? Yeah, so whipping is to get the government's business through. I mean, ultimately, you're there to make sure that the government, you know, wins the votes. This is Claire O'Neill. She's a former MP and minister and in 2013 was a whip. The traditional view is if you don't vote the right way, we're going to tell the papers about your awful, you know, alcoholic life or dreadful personal habits. And the other tactic is if you don't support the government, you won't ever get a government job. So one of the the power of patronage, and that was very powerful in the first few rebellions on the referendum uh, legislation. I know that, and this is pre again pre my time. I was a very junior new MP, but the sense of look, if you don't support the government, you'll never get a job in government. This will this will count against you, and that's powerful, right? So generally, and the other tactic is um, so you've got sort of you know bullying, you've got patronage, you've got kindness. These three individuals did all of this and well, but they did more too. They understood that this period was about one thing numbers, that it wasn't, in the end, about the hundreds and hundreds of angry emails from constituents, or those outside Westminster, furious that the Downing Street operation had partied and the Prime Minister had lied. It was a counting game, pure and simple. All that mattered was stopping the number of letters from MPs calling for a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson from getting to the level which would trigger an actual vote. All that mattered was the number 54. Political parties have official whips, the people who are supposed to take care of party discipline and keep backbenchers in line. But the official whips were hopelessly discredited at this time. So, in stepped Chris Heaton-Harris, Chris Pincher and Nigel Adams. And they got to work. They found out exactly who'd been at that meeting on the Tuesday night. The pork pie plot, the evening before Christian Wakeford's defection, where 20 of the new intake of Conservative MPs had got together to discuss the Prime Minister's position. Who knows how they got the names? But, sure enough, the names of the people who were there leaked. And Chris, Chris and Nigel sought them out. And they tried to bring them round. A former senior cabinet minister said to me that the crucial quality of a good whip is to know what medicine to use on the patient. And in the last weeks, it's become quite obvious to me which medicines were used on which patients in that pork pie group. And that, in the end, they worked. During that crucial week, Chris Heaton-Harris, Chris Pincher and Nigel Adams would hang around by the escalator in Portcullis House, the building where a lot of MPs have their offices. They'd pick them off as they passed, ask them how they were feeling, if they'd sent in a letter, what they needed to get them back on side. Why do you think that those three were forced to step in when they did to save the Prime Minister as opposed to the official whip's office at that time? Because, uh, because they're really effective. You know, they were really effective in the leadership campaign and they clearly are able to 
perhaps there's another element to this which we've touched on, which is the sort of organisation that you know that there is something about okay, well, hang on, you know, MPX, you said this and you said that, and well, how are you going to do this? And do you really want to you know put in the no confidence now? There's just a sort of relentless organisation. I used to keep Excel spreadsheets, um, very password protected, and not not for nefarious purposes, but just to log things like people's birthdays, what did they feel about legislation X and, and sort of obviously destroyed them all when I left the whip's office. Um, <clears throat> but they were really effective. And I was told that was really unusual just to have that sense of, you know, understanding of your flock as it's referred to. And I think probably that team are pretty organized. I imagine they've got lots of spreadsheets and lots of energy and, and outreach as well. Those MPs who joined in 2019, those who met that Tuesday, won't be used to that. The whipping operation they'd had before was notoriously hands-off. A text one week, sometimes, just checking they were on board with upcoming votes. Nothing like the activity that kicked into gear during this operation to save Johnson. And they'd say to these MPs things like, you don't want to become Andrew Bridgen, do you? Which is sort of a damning but coded question that needs a bit of explanation. Andrew Bridgen is a Conservative MP who had sent in a letter but who isn't, how to put this kindly, the most highly regarded backbencher in Westminster? There's only one answer to that question. It became bitter, but so far, knowing a little bit about how Westminster works, I was struck that the shadow whipping operation was a lot like what normal whips do. The not-so-subtle pressure, the muttered threats about career prospects. That's pretty ordinary. But there were serious allegations made at the time by the Conservative MP, William Wragg. He said Whips had threatened to pull funding from the constituencies of MPs who called for a no-confidence vote. He even spoke to the Met Police about it. In the end, though, the Met didn't launch a criminal investigation. But that wasn't the heart of it. The heart of it was the meetings these backbench MPs were having with the Prime Minister, who was making direct attempts himself to shore up support. After a first meeting outside the lifts in Portcullis House, the next stop for a number of MPs was a one-to-one with Boris Johnson. And that's where the real business got done. I found out that at least two MPs were offered jobs. The offers were explicit, and they came with a condition attached. The MPs were expected to support the Prime Minister. And the job offers came, ultimately, directly from Boris Johnson. When he was pushed on the specifics, Boris Johnson would say that they should sort it out with one of the three men. But I know that, at least sometimes, the first mention of a job came from the Prime Minister himself. Some MPs were quite open with me about how all this played out. But others were more coy. When I asked one whether he'd met the PM personally, he smiled, looked ahead of him and just said, I'm not going to tell you if I met with him at that time. Another MP was persuaded to support Boris Johnson after an offer of levelling up funding for his constituency. An offer that MP believed would turn into something real. A former senior cabinet minister told me that promises like this, explicit promises of a job in exchange for support, would be surprising and foolish if they were true. You never make offers. But MPs tell me these offers were made, and the MPs they were made to came round to Boris Johnson. In February, new jobs were announced in a mini reshuffle. They included six new PPS jobs, private parliamentary secretaries. Now, something caught my eye in this list. There were two names in there that had been at that port pie meeting. They were Duncan Baker and Richard Holden. George Osborne said to me, this is a court and your power comes from whose elbow you are dancing at as a junior person. And so 
what you want is to basically be noticed and you, you want to do good for your constituency, but you want to show that you're getting on, right? And so basically a PPS is your very first slot on the run. And it is, it's called the ministerial bag carrier. It's almost a halfway house between backbench and minister. It's not paid. And your job is to support your minister in parliament. And what was striking was that despite being at a meeting to plot the downfall of the PM, they had accepted a job soon after with the government. I reached out to both of them for this story, but neither responded. Duncan, as we heard at the start, had been furious about Partygate, and he'd made no attempt to hide it from his colleagues either. And Richard? This was Richard last week. Can the Prime Minister confirm that this new community hospital is now full steam ahead? And will he commit to coming to concert to kick off the building works if the plan goes to head uh, by the end of next year? Now MPs raised eyebrows at this, and it's not difficult to see why. It wasn't at all long ago that Richard said he was waiting on the Sue Gray report, and it was definitely not a yes that the Prime Minister would keep his job. But then, something changed. And I think I know what that might be. He took the promotion, and now he wants Boris Johnson to open his new hospital. Yes, Mr. Speaker, I'm delighted there'll be a new hospital at Shotley Bridge. I congratulate him on all the work he's done to, to lobby for it. And Mr. Speaker, what it Sometimes, while I've been reporting on this story, I've tried to put myself in the shoes of one of those MPs at that pork pie meeting. I had 19 colleagues with me, right? So I'd have felt strong. Maybe not all of them had made up their minds to try to get rid of Boris Johnson, but a lot of them had. At that meeting on the Tuesday, they'd done a secret ballot to see who said they'd sent in letters, and half of them, so 10, had. There were personal attacks on Alicia Kearns and Dana Davison, two MPs who were at that meeting, which might have made me think twice. But I think I'd have felt emboldened by the size of it. All it would take was 54 MPs to send a letter for the Prime Minister to face that vote, and here was nearly half that number in one room. But maybe that was the miscalculation, because Boris Johnson didn't need to stop 54 people writing letters. He only needed to stop a handful, and he knew exactly how to do it. Normally, a Prime Minister uses patronage to reward loyalty, but perhaps a little bit of genius in Boris Johnson's approach, as well as a thing which flirts with the edge of what's acceptable, is that he used it to reward disloyalty instead. It was in this climate that these shadow whips were able to pick off would-be letters. Christian Wakeford did move too soon. But he didn't dramatise the inevitable as successful defections of the past have. And Keir Starmer had, yes, misread the Tory psyche. But it was about more than that. Boris Johnson owes a lot to Chris Heaton-Harris, Chris Pincher and Nigel Adams, men we know little about, who were able, where the official whips couldn't, to find those at risk of tipping that letter count over the threshold. And there were two new jobs, which I've not yet mentioned. They went to these two Chrises, men who were deemed so valuable to Johnson in this hour of danger that they should be in charge of the whipping operation in its entirety. Chris Heaton-Harris is now chief whip and Chris Pincher his deputy. So this episode paints a picture of what party discipline could look like from now on. And Boris Johnson's safe, for now. It started early this morning. The Russian assault on Ukraine began with missile attacks on key targets. Without a doubt, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which made that week, a week when MPs described Westminster to me as a pressure cooker, seem almost of a different age. Across the country, Ukrainians woke to explosions lighting up the dawn sky. 
Even the most critical Tory MPs agree that the crisis in Ukraine has changed everything, that it would be impossible to remove him at this moment. In the words of one MP, an MP who wants him gone, it would look self-indulgent. And one poll last week showed him having made a full recovery from those party revelations. Now MPs watch these polls, MPs including those at that pork pie meeting, and MPs in marginal constituencies just like Christians. But the many MPs I spoke to believe, should he be issued a fine by the Metropolitan Police, that more letters will go in. And we may not see the saga start again, but we would, without a doubt, see this trio of men assume a role at the heart of British politics once more. I thought this would be a story about how loyalty saved the Prime Minister, a unique brand of loyalty belonging to the Conservative Party, and about how that moment Christian Wakeford crossed the floor had changed everything. And it did. But it wasn't because of a special brand of tribalism belonging to the Conservative Party. It was about transactions, about how Christian's move gave three men the chance to count, and about how Boris Johnson subsequently squared them off, promised them jobs and funding, and made it through that period. And when the history is written of why Boris Johnson survived the greatest wobble of his premiership yet, it's this. I put the findings of my investigation to number 10. I asked them this list of questions. Did the Prime Minister have a one-to-one meeting with Duncan Baker this year and before his appointment as PPS? And following that meeting, was Baker offered a position as PPS? Did the Prime Minister have a one-to-one meeting with Richard Holden this year and before his appointment as PPS? And following that meeting, was Holden offered a position as PPS? I told them that through my reporting, I had come to understand that at least two further MPs were offered jobs in personal meetings with Johnson this year, in addition to at least one who was offered levelling up funding for his constituency in return for their personal support following the Downing Street Party allegations. I then asked if the Prime Minister denies making offers of jobs and or constituency funding during his meetings with backbench MPs from 12th of January to 11th of February, or wished to offer a response to any of the points above. And to those questions, this was the response I received. The Prime Minister routinely meets members of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. This story was reported by me, Lara Spirit. The producer was Gary Marshall. Additional production from Claudia Williams. Sound design was by Tom Kinsella. And the editor was Kerry Thomas. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. Now, I've said it before, but the kind of journalism that we do here at Tortoise, the slow investigative work, it's really shaped and enhanced by our members. So I'm inviting you, not for the first time, to become a member of our newsroom. And in fact, you can be my guest. Just go to tortoisemedia.com and use the code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. You'll get access to more material, to our events, to our other podcasts, and you'll have a seat at the table to shape the stories that we tell. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.